Uh, welcome to a very special installment of Nailed, a very special emergency episode. Merry Trentmas, everyone. And a happy new... Year Zero. Nice. Happy New Year Zero and a Merry <laughs> Trentmas. And uh, we're late. This isn't a normal episode because no. we missed that because my computer exploded. That was a sad day. But we're using a backup system held together. How rough does it look right now? It looks pretty, pretty rough. The office is very, very rough. <laughs> but that's a problem for another time. Yeah. We already had this interview with Adam Steiner recorded. So we said, we got to get that out to the people. That's Oscar. He and said, Oscar, Mary Ninmus. Oscar's here and he's even more freaked out than ever. A lot of chords for him to play with now. So we just want to put out this interview with Adam Steiner, the mm-hmm. writer of Into the Never, the uh, the making of the Downward Spiral book. Um, and if this part of the recording sounds weird, uh, blame the laptop setup we've got going right now. But uh, the interview part sounds good, I think, right? You listen? Yeah, it sounded good. I listened to it. How, how do you think it went? I think it went very well. Yeah, I think it was really good. We should just let them listen to it, though. Is there anything else that we should say before? Nah, we'll pop back in and say goodbye. And Okay. Yeah, Adam was really awesome. I hope you like the interview. We will be back after the interview. So here we are with Adam Steiner author of Into the Never, uh, which many of you uh, probably know and love, but if you don't yet, it's a, a great book I just finished about the making of the downward spiral uh, that we both love, and it's uh, one of the most in-depth and dense and well-researched things I've probably ever read about Nine Inch Nails. To be fair, I haven't read... <laughs> I don't know that I've read other books about Nine Inch Nails, to be honest. You read the 33 and a third. Oh, okay. I read the Daphne Carr. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's more of a pamphlet. But anyway, thank you so much, Adam, for being on. And how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me on as well. Uh, yeah, and in the holiday season as well. So it's quite exciting. Right. <laughs> and we're wrapping up our downward spiral era um, as Christmas is coming. So <laughs> going out of those really dark moods into... I don't know, a jollier <laughs> type of time. A festive dark mood. Yeah. Yeah. It's we're putting of best some, of both. <laughs> the darkness is still there, but we're putting some Christmas lights on it, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> jingle jangle. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're jingling that tambourine or the sleigh bell as as Trent himself would love to do. Kind of a right out the gate, the thing, this mm. is a question just for me. So I compiled questions from listeners. Um, I asked them what they wanted to know and also what Jess and I wanted to know are included in here. Mm-hmm. But first, I just wanted to talk about our shared experience, both of mm. us having read your book. So we have a sort of a shared experience. And what's it like living in the downward spiral for so long, as I'm sure you had to writing this book? And <laughs> so this is a multi-part type thing. Was there a negative impact on your psyche? Uh, is there... TDS fatigue. And now, can you go back and listen again to the album in any sort of a normal way? I think multi-part questions are always the fun ones. Yeah. Because they're the ones that make you think. 
and then you think you have a position and you say by the way here's something coming from the side and they gotcha now it's just badly again. worded and, and it's a run-on sentence <clears> some sort. <laughs> no no they're also exciting um because i have to think on my feet which is perhaps the best way to answer a question rather than me come at it um too pre-approved okay. so um yes the first part of your question getting into the downward spiral i don't feel uh off the cuff that i was personally sucked too completely into that zone i tried to remain quite objective um, almost like a journalist some people were concerned that i used a lot of quotation but i tried to um, use more of trent's voice in the book from things that he'd actually said especially about um, the downward spiral and things that he said throughout other parts of his career obviously post 1994 which brings us all the way up to now mm-hmm. um about his music in general and his attitudes to life and so on and how that related back to where he was at in 1993 94 and so on um but to, yeah to answer your question more personally i guess um i feel that i i was okay going into the album because it's such a what i call an impossible record a bit like things i compare it to things like joy division um the, the first album Unknown Pleasures, and uh, things like Manic Street Preachers, Holy Bible, which um, some people, I think, especially in America, aren't so familiar with. And so they're a bit confused by the comparison. Um, But it was an album that obviously came out in the same year. Um, And I think actually in April of um, 94 in the UK. Um, Albums that deal with um, quite extreme nihilism and high art influences and um, extreme states of um, emotional and mental anguish and darkness. So I think when you immerse yourself in that stuff, on the one hand, you're like, it's okay, I'm sifting through material and finding things that are relevant to my argument or where I find a strong um, thematic strand through Trent's own experiences and his own perceptions of his music. Um, You don't necessarily get too affected yourself, but it is a really dark album. And I think um, Kerrang did a list, gosh, back when I was a teenager. Uh, I don't know what year that might have been, but um, where they did a list a long time ago. And, um, you know, it was the, the 50 heaviest albums. And they meant heaviest, not just in music, but things like um, Slayer, um, Rain in Blood and so on. Yeah. And they're just talking themes, emotions, the, the, the physical weight of the music and so on. So how all those things come together Um in terms of just you know force of sound and how it makes you feel emotionally and lyrical content which is obviously you know on the downward spiral particularly dark how that can sort of sit on top of you and sometimes sort of overtake you um i think the one thing i come back to with the downward spiral is that um for me and i think a lot of people in my generation and around it i decide um is that it was um a really cathartic experience and it's the kind of album that talks back to you and um where you are struggling to find expression for certain feelings and certain emotions it's the kind of record that shows you a that you're not alone but b also that um there's ways of approaching um negative challenging feelings that um can be helpful just in terms of getting out of your system expressing it and having that almost that hand or that voice that walks alongside you so as tough as the spiral thing is you don't listen to it all the time it's something that you come back to because it has a lot of resonance for you personally and i think that's one of the amazing enduring things about the downward spiral 
and that people will go back to it, even though it's very dark and challenging, and it doesn't necessarily make me feel bad. Um, it's perhaps uplifting, but it's it's hard to say why that is for people in general. I think it's very uh, individual, you know. Yeah. yeah, that's a great positive way to look at it after living in it for so long. And we've lived in it. Well, we've talked on podcasts, what, 10 hours about it now <laughs> at this <laughs> point. Um, so maybe a little less than you. Um, but there's a lot Over of several months, I reckon, though. <laughs> OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm finding more reasons that I really like it. Um, but also mm. there is a fatigue involved and I am ready to move on. I, yeah. I feel ready to move on to the fragile and then become fatigued by the fragile. <laughs> <laughs> In a whole new and exciting way. Yeah. I think you've, I think you've hit on something there though, because it's really hard for um, Trent Reznor to talk about the downward spiral because it was such a long time ago and he's a quite a different person now. And yet yeah. he's still that person who made that record and you can't necessarily line the two things up, you know, especially in musical careers. Cause ideally artists develop, change, evolve, if we want to be really heavy handed. Uh, and I think we need to allow them that they have a particular phase in their life in which they could only have done that certain kind of work and they can't repeat it. So where you've got things like the fragile and um, hesitation marks, which perhaps revisit some of those um, biographical elements, they're not necessarily saying, oh, I can just replicate that because that's kind of generally the worst kind of art you can do, you know? Yeah. Um, can you, because I, I don't know how long I'll have to wait before I can kind of go back and casually listen to this album without overthinking it maybe, <laughs> or maybe I never, maybe I'll always overthink it, but are you able to, um, casually listen in any normal way to this album or do you kind of put it on the shelf for a little while? Good question. Um, it's hard to casually listen to the downward spiral. I was going to say I it's very hard. That's, that's a dumb question a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, um, it's funny, isn't it? Cause it makes you sit up and take notice from the off, you know, and then it actually gets, not necessarily more intense. It gets intense in a different, I think, more challenging way and kind of grinds you down a little bit um, mm -hmm. from which you feel slightly tested. Um, but yeah, in terms of going back to it, I have, and I bought um, during the process of writing the book, I bought the, um, I think it was a 2017, for whatever reason, um, remaster yes. um, on vinyl. It's really, really good. And it has that cute thing where it's on two discs. You're like, oh my God, an LP on two um, two individual records and like right. three songs. And I have to flip it. But <laughs> thankfully, the songs are quite long and involved. So mm -hmm. I get to immerse myself for a few tracks and then I flip it. But um, I thought the, the fidelity on it was really high. I have, um, by way of weird comparison, I have a, um, a copy of the Beatles' um, Blue album, The Best Of, which is like, it's like 67 to 70, I think. And for me, that's kind of the best of the Beatles uh, as opposed to the earlier popular yeah. stuff. But um, it's it's so fucking good. Oh, sorry. So we're doing swearing? Uh, we are now. Okay. Do a lot of we can swearing. bleep it. No, we swear yeah. a lot. <laughs> okay, well, that's only one. So let's see how we go. We've only got <laughs> right, ages. Uh, yeah. <laughs> drink if you swear. Um, everyone has to drink. Yeah, we so do. That's yeah. how it works. And, um, and then you swear more. Um, so yeah, the, um, I have that, um, on, on LP and the fidelity is really high and like strawberry fields forever is just super clear. And I feel I can hear the layers and I'm in the, I was going to say in the music, I'm in the flow of where the music's going and it's like, it's so immersive and it's so enjoyable. 
And I really got that with the, um, the LP version uh, of the record. So that was kind of fun and sort of enjoyable, mm-hmm. um, you know, to just like delve into that and hear it in a really different way because I'm the generation that we obviously just, we just had it on CD. Yeah. And that was before, um, yeah, MP3. It wouldn't have come out for a long time, really, unless it was a pirate. Um, and then I think like what you say, you talk about things like the fragile, you know, when you come to that record, it's much more not even upbeat it's just much more forceful and there's much more drive to it and there's so much more layering of textures um from song to song to song but then there are so many more songs so even though it's um 14 tracks the downward spiral is really condensed really intense it's got that holy grail vibe you know that um codex thing this giant book like the bible um Mm -hmm. old testament and new Mm -hmm. double edition and so when you come to the other stuff in Trent's discography, it's much, I wouldn't even say lied to it. It's just much more like varied. Um, and he's doing more with the music and I think with the, um, the themes of the songs. So, yeah, I think I definitely got like fatigued with the album, um, but it also helped me to appreciate the other records a lot more. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mm. jumped in really, really <laughs> with maybe the heaviest thing I was going to ask, but maybe just more light and introductory. Um, what, how did you first get into Nine Inch Nails and the Downward Spiral itself? I'm interested. Great question. Um, and that's a really challenging one as well. It's like, oh, is it, is it the Gateway Nine Inch Nails album? I yeah. think it is, even though Pretty Hate Machine is really cool and really fun and like, it's weird to listen back to it. You kind of think like, this is like Depeche Mode, but you know, yep. Depeche Mode weren't necessarily... They weren't really saying doing great strides at that stage. It was sort of, I think, after 1990, really, when they really like, violated when they hit the stride. Anyway, yeah. um, sorry, I digress. No, I agree. Um, I, agree. <laughs> um, I, I got into the Downward Spiral listening to, I think, related music, but not necessarily directly related, because um, Trent Reznor collaborates a lot now, and he did in the early days. There was this stuff like, um, is it called Pig Face, the spin-off yeah. project? Yeah, and then there's the other one that never actually, I don't think I ever saw the light of day. Oh, God, Tapeworm. Tapeworm, was it? yep. I don't know if Tapeworm actually came out anywhere. It was shelved. End. Yeah, but like, it was so good to just put it out for kicks. I um, know. Because everyone's just waiting for it. Like, why not? Like, Everything else has been what has he got to lose? Like, via torrents, he's leaked things. I, for some yeah, reason, that one yeah. went sour in a way that could never see the light of day. I'm know. sure it's actually really fun to just hear back on that kind of stuff. Anyway, sorry, to answer your question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yikes. Um, so yeah, I was listening to similar kind of stuff. Like I think things like the Holy Bible, um, a bit of Pantera, um, just uh, Marilyn Manson. Um, and so things that kind of ran alongside Manage Nails, but not necessarily preceded it, you know. Um, and so for me, uh, it was the kind of music that seemed really in tune with what I was interested in, but also the fact that it was just so sonically arresting. And I think there was you know, in the early 90s, um, especially to the late 90s, there was a lot of varied, interesting music and new metal kind of took over towards the end of that decade. But there wasn't necessarily anything that was so um, sonically interesting and different and um, challenging and confrontational, I think, is the key thing. There was a lot of um, aims to please, especially within those new metal bands. They were looking for the broadest kind of market, whereas the downward spiral doesn't really have a market. And yet it struck home with like millions of people and over time and it's enduring. Whereas some of those other records, they haven't 
um, lasted so well, you know? Yeah, for sure. Okay. I have to get to some listener things. Um, (laughs) (laughs) sure. I can talk less as well. No, no, not at all. I just want to make sure we get these in. So, um, oh, no, wait, I'm going to try to do these in an order that makes some sort of narrative sense. Lauren asks, um, so during your reset research process, were there any challenges, maybe things like getting interviews, et cetera, Mm. or any memorable highlights during your research process? Yeah, that's a tricky question. It's a good question. It's the right question to ask. Um, I, I, I never really like set myself as a major authority on a Nine Inch Nails, etc. And I think some fans, not the majority, some fans would, and they're keen to correct people. And that's okay, because they probably have read all the Wikipedia and all the interviews and everything. I never set myself as someone who knows the exact dates. Uh, I do my best, <laughs> especially in the proofreading stage, but I am not uh, an expert per se. So I was really keen to reach out to Nine Inch Nails collaborators. Um, I did go forward to uh, speak to um, Trent Reznor um, and I went through his management team and so on. And I just never really got a, a definite response. I didn't get a no, but I didn't get a yes either. So like a lot of people, I was kind of hanging in the breeze. And to be fair, I think it was like, there's this British guy writing a book for some American publisher um, about the album. Do you want to talk to him? And it's like, who is this guy? I'm doing all this other stuff now, um, new stuff, um, things like really amazing stuff, like the Social Network soundtrack Mm -hmm. was ages ago as well. It's like, I'm doing so much more new stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't really probably have time to talk about that kind of thing. And I think what's fascinating for me I don't know if anyone who's listening saw the Netflix Song Exploder episode about Hurt, which was really fucking good and had some like archive photography and archive footage that I hadn't really come across before. Maybe it was out there somewhere, but I hadn't seen these weird little shots that seemed to be Trent just kicking around in the studio. And I was like, is that um, the Cielo Drive house? Is it the A&M studios? Um, You know, I just really, I think it's in Miami. Um, I couldn't place a lot of the stuff. So I was like, wow, this is really something unique and different. And that's the power and the weight of Netflix and this Song Exploder series. Uh, And, you know, more power to them. But uh, that was a great episode. And I was like, wow, if they did that on all the Nine Inch Nails songs, they'd have an amazing program. Um, But that's more for me to say. I have neither the budget or the It'd be a great um, series. Just do every song <laughs> in the style that they did hurt half an hour on. Yeah, each. they they spent like um a neat. Uh, they spent, I think they spent like a cute twenty minutes, right? By the time you yeah. sift through some of the other, they play the whole song at the end. That takes up time. Yeah, exactly. It's Netflix, isn't it? It's like we have to pack it out. You know, we've got a twenty-seven <laughs> minute it. show here, um, almost a full half hour. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, but my point was that um. I don't think it was of interest to Resna to speak to perhaps someone like me, but also to talk about the downward spiral when it's so long ago. And it's such a bit of a time capsule thing that I was trying to do. Um, I approached band members, a lot of people, the thing, what was weird with the downward spiral, and obviously you'll see this in the liner notes, there weren't really many people involved. There's lots of people doing bits and pieces and there's, there's key collaborators, you know, and people like Sean Bevan, who I think he's listed as engineer because Trent, yeah. along with, yeah, along with um, Mulder, yeah, Alan Mulder um, and Flood, you know, they're kind of the producers, but I, I, I think they're also kind of the engineers as well. I think Trent right. had like final say in a lot of stuff. Um, and what's interesting is, um, I think it's 
is it Flood or Alan Mulder who didn't work with Reznor after the downward spiral? Flood. Flood yeah. stopped yeah. because of the uh, infamous. Just do it, track. Just do yeah. it, Nike. I talk about this in the book, so we don't have to go right now. But my, all I'm saying is um, there was those guys. Um, Sean Bevan is there as an engineer, but I think he was actually quite an instrumental guy. He was there a lot, and he was yeah. really great to talk to. He was really helpful. Um, I spoke to Adrian Ballou, who fascinating guy to talk to just because he worked with um, David Bowie as well. And also he toured with him. And so that's a really interesting. Um, One of our favorite lines from your book, I think, is from the <laughs> Blue interview. Yeah. Jess, do you remember what he said about um, talking heads? Oh, no. Wait, you, you can talk. <laughs> uh, I think the quote was, it reminded me of Talking Heads Remain in Light, a seminal album, which I also played on. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just dropped it in there. Yep. I mean, I didn't really. I'll be honest. I'm, I don't know Talking Heads that well. I know um, Romanian Night is a huge thing for Trent Reznor. So it's an amazing connection yeah. because, it, yeah, it's just something I wasn't aware of as again. But yeah, Adrian Blue, and he was really lovely and helpful. And then other people like um, Danny Lonna, who I think, to be fair, I don't know if he's actually, he might be on the record in bits and pieces, but he was mainly around like touring and the early days of Nin. And he was like, I couldn't get a hold of him, but he would have been a great person to speak to. Mm. So... Yeah, you get these challenges as you try and approach people and it's the angle at which you approach them. And I think sometimes they're out, well, you're just starting to make a quick buck or you want to hear something sordid about CLA Drive and stuff. And mm. to be fair, all the sordidness of CLA Drive is there on the internet. You don't yeah. need to talk about it. It's just there in the cold, hard facts. Right. Um, I just wanted to know what those guys think and felt about the record. But um, yeah, I wasn't able to speak to loads of people um, Charlie Klauser also was very helpful. He came in much more um, instrumentally in the Fragile era. And he, and he was on the tours, I think, um, towards the end. But yeah, he he was on the Fragile and then for a while with Nine Inch Nails. Um, so people like that were, you know, they were really supportive and helpful. But yeah, Trent Reznor himself remained the enigma. However, it gave me a lot of value as a writer. As I mentioned before, I used a lot of interview material which not everyone has access to and is aware of because you have to really kind of scour uh the internet and books some of this stuff um so not having him directly involved meant that it was unofficial not legit as we might say in the uk but um that gives you a lot of freedom um not necessarily to speculate but to work with other things that the person has said around the record and rather than bring it up again and challenge them on it you're saying well, this was your statement here, here, and here. We can draw a common thread through the, the narrative of the record. So that was really useful and helpful. So in a weird way, it was kind of good that Trent Reznor didn't want to speak to me. I suppose I'm saying that. But um, yeah. from a journalistic perspective, it gave me a lot of freedom. Yeah, I don't know how helpful he might have been. Um, there's an interview he did a long mm. time ago with Terry Gross when they were promoting The Social Network, and she would ask him questions about Pretty Hate Machine or about Downward Spiral, he would say, like, I'm a different person now. I can't go back into my mind, you know, when I was 24 mm. years old and tell you what I was thinking then. So I, I don't, yeah. I guess it would depend upon the questions you would ask um, if yeah. you had gotten to speak with him. Maybe he didn't like her vibe. I don't know. I like Terry Gross personally, but. I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh, I just, um, I, I do wonder that it's like, it's, it must be so hard. I, I can't imagine being in that position myself. Mm-hmm. of having like something that was like lauded and then 20 years later because hey you're a different person literally mm-hmm. and also you're doing something else 
I, I wanted to put this in the book, but I love the idea about, I think it's every 10 or 11 years, um, at which point all of the cells in your body have completely um, decomposed and thus mm-hmm. been regenerated. And yeah. so you're physically a new entity. Obviously, you look a hell of a lot different, decades, um, just a decade. Uh, so, yeah, I really like that concept as well because mm-hmm. it has this thing of like um, the record being, you know, artifact and so on. Right. Yeah, I, I was curious, um, and I don't want to create a huge tangent, but did you want to or were you able to speak to Chris Vrenna? No. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> I answered <laughs> that in the wrong order. You um, wanted to. Yes, I did. Um, but no, I couldn't get a hold of him. Um, and, and like you say, like more than, more than Sean Bevan, for example, Vrenna was like the housemate. And what's interesting about that is it would have been good to know his relationship with Trent at that time, because he was like the guy who I think was like keeping him sane, give or yeah. take, um, because they were there for a really long time. I know they did a lot of recording at AM, but the timeline and exactly how many months each space isn't really clear. Maybe someone out there knows it and has it in black and white, but you know, I think overall the album is kind of a year. And for that period, that was quite a long time, I think in the early 90s, you know. And now it's like, I need a two-year gap between albums. But to be fair, that's probably like pouring exhaustion and things like that. Um, I think there's a lot more media attention on artists now, whereas back then you didn't have social media or really the internet in 94 or 93. So, um, yeah, Chris Renner would have been really good, but um, no, I couldn't track him down. And he he fulfilled so many roles within the record. Yeah. And, but like I say, I think, I think it seems that he was much more of a... Um, uh, a supportive friend and a, a critical voice that he, uh, Trent Reznor, could trust and refer back to. And that's really valuable in itself. Um, and then there's the crazy anecdotes, you know, the poor guy having to watch loads of um, laser discs. I don't know anyone who has a laser disc player, but I'm sure at the time it was the shit. And, um, <laughs> you know, he had to just sit there and watch loads of movies and find little bits of samples, of which there are not tons, you know. That's the thing about his role in the album. Well, I heard it was VHS tapes, like thousands of them. I'm, the story changes every time. <laughs> but I'm, it's, a, it's a recent thing for me that I'm realizing maybe Chris Vrenna's role in the sound of that album is part of what makes it unlike any other album. And maybe he's more integral to the whole thing than we ever gave him credit for because he was the one finding all these sounds that kind of made sure. Downward Spiral what it is. Yeah, it almost sounds like a um, an engineering type role or a producer type role, mm-hmm. of which you know on this album there wasn't really a band. You know there was there was drummers who were in and out. Um, there was a couple of people who played bits of drums on bits mm-hmm. of tracks, um, and Reznor played. He claimed he played all the guitar himself, um, yep. apart from Baloo. So yep. you know you have these like great swathes of instrumentation, um, but I think someone like Vrenna was there helping set up the amps. Um, let's get these pedals, let's try this configuration of pedals. And Reza talks a lot, it's a really organic method. He's like, find a sound he liked in the pedals, and then he kind of riff on it with a guitar. And if you're if you're that far sighted in like 93, that you can see a way of making music, a way of making music, is if you're not the virtuoso instrumentalist, but you have them around you, you make a piece of music or sound, and then you sample it, and then you reference it or you chop it up or you you delay it, you make it into something new and then you sample that um, and that pops up in and out of the tracks and so on. 
So it becomes completely alien kind of guitar. Um, yeah. And there's so little moments on the, on the album where there is a riff or there is a chord structure that you can go dum 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 and it doesn't go back to a, rep- a repetition of the verse or it doesn't just drop into the chorus based upon that chord progression. I'm not a technically minded um, person. It's just that you don't hear those kind of standardized things very much on the album. So it was more about working with sound as opposed to songwriting practices. Yeah, absolutely. More about looping and sampling than I think any of us realized mm-hmm. until we, you know, read more about how it was actually made and stuff. Yeah, I've because um, there wasn't a band. There was no band there. Yeah. <laughs> there was a live room with no one in it. Right. And they were just hitting, hitting drums, smacking them a single time, not really playing, a, uh, pretending to play a drum kit by sampling the drum sounds and sequencing them and yeah, and, and you have, it's why you have Reznor um, doing that amazing drum solo mm-hmm. um, at the end of Piggy. And it's, it's, it goes out of time, which um, Brian Eno did a lot as well. Uh, but you have this like thing where he's playing the drums and he's just going for it, really you know, hitting them harder than perhaps he needs to. And also letting the sound ride out and himself fall out of time and trying to pull it back in, but also just going with it going with the motions of it. And that was just something he put on the record. It wasn't supposed to be perfect. It wasn't supposed to be a great performance, but in its own broken, weird way, it is a great performance. And yet it's not technically what a song should have. And that perhaps kind of speaks to the whole record, you know? Yeah. The, the piggy drum solo worked completely by accident uh, Mm. is what I've heard. And it just got left on because it ended up being the right thing for it, I guess. The okay. wrong thing at the right time. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, in regards to research, Holly asked if there were any any funny stories that didn't make it into the book. Uh, <laughs> anything that's like on the cutting room floor of the book um, that maybe you wanted to include but didn't. Oh, it's a good question. Or did you put it all out there? Did you did you leave nothing on the field? Hmm. What's the smart answer? You tell me. I don't know. <laughs> make up um, something really funny then. <laughs> yeah, make make up something. Yeah, that's that's the answer to most situations. It's like right. make up something fun right. or funny, uh, and you can go with anything. I I had to cut the book down a lot. I had like a mm. hundred k words and so on. And the book is a, a generous eighty ish thousand. And like the publisher is like, oh crikey. I didn't say correct, but um, they're like, oh, this is this is pretty long, and then I was like, yeah, it's a really dense album. It's really intense. There's nothing to say about it. I've really enjoyed it. It's been exciting. You know, it's been a slightly um, swashbuckling yarn, the writing of the whole damn thing, and then it's going to be a book. So yeah, to to cut it down from 100k was hard. I tried to just refine what I thought the fans would appreciate and enjoy, and get something out of, and ideally to either show them my own personal insights, reflections for what it's worth as a listener and a fan. Um, and to maybe like throw in a few crazy facts and coincidences that I come across along the way. So I think in that regard, generally the book kind of succeeds. Uh, but obviously if I'd had like more access to people like Trent Reznor, who knows what kind of crazy project it could have grown into. And like I said before, I think it could have kind of hamstrung it because I could have ended up getting loads of great interview stuff from Trent and it just becomes Trent said this, Trent said this, whereas I use a lot of quotes, but I think I kind of merge them into the text. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas 
if Trent just had his opportunity to riff upon his own record, um, <laughs> God forbid, the poor guy might end up getting like edited to fuck and then he would perhaps feel cut out of his own story. And also, yeah. it's perhaps for people like me, the later generation than him, the, the fans, followers, to go after and like examine how it was for us and what it meant to us and so on, rather than for him to say, ah, recording it was kind of like this, because maybe that wouldn't resonate with so many people. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know if there were many funny moments in the recording Even of that album. It's a damn good question. Tommy Lee and the Steakhouse, did you learn anything really funny about that? I never I found a that. definitive end, should we say, to um, that particular situation because it was something around him fucking a groupie. And I think this is, I don't think it's in the line notes, but it's in the text somewhere. Uh-huh. Um, it's about him fucking a groupie. And it was sampled and referred to a steakhouse. Yeah. Which I don't know if that's a euphemism for sex in certain states. Yeah. Which states? No clue. Indeed. We need a, we need a psychogeographer for this kind of work. But um, <laughs> something uh, greasy and, you know, torrid and sordid, all the yeah. best things in life thrown into this weird little moment. And um, that's perhaps Tommy Lee's greatest contribution to music. Um, <laughs> I think certainly not his drumming. And um, yeah, uh, it's this weird little thing. And so there's not necessarily many funny moments along that stuff. And yeah, you have to appreciate. I think when you talk about the camaraderie of the guys being at the studio, the way um, Adrian Ballou talked about it, and Sean Bevan talked about it, like, oh, it's um, it's four or five in the morning. Oh, geez, sun's coming up. Let's all go have a coffee um, out the front and watch the sun rise up. Because they've been up all night working really hard on the album, putting some really dark, heavy shit. And yet the next morning, the sun also rises. And you can be like, oh, I feel really proud of what I did today. I don't think I can necessarily sell it to my mum and dad. I don't think I necessarily um, play it for my girlfriend or my wife or my partner. But um, yeah. I did some great art today and it's dark as fuck and it's really challenging. And loads of people were like, I don't understand it. I don't like it. But, you know, maybe, maybe it'll sell a few thousand copies and we'll touch a few hearts and minds. <laughs> um, but yeah, poor old Sean and Mads, you know, they had this really intense bonding, close working experience. And uh, yeah, they produced this like unique masterpiece. And yet they don't necessarily have to feel sad about it. It wasn't necessarily a torturous challenging difficult thing they just worked really fucking hard um and perhaps that comes through uh, i i think it really does um do you want to read the the two-part one from jody jody says i would first like to say thanks to adam for being a great friend to those of us who are fans of nine inch nails on instagram and interacting with us it means a lot and for filling in the gap of nine inch nails books there aren't many and the ones that existed before into the never were either quotes from magazine articles or fabricated biographies that weren't really worth the paper on which they were written. So here are the questions. (laughs) Um, Were you prepared for the response you got from Nine Inch Nails fans? Everyone I've spoken to who has read it says they love how thoroughly researched and lovingly and painstakingly put together it is. You can tell when someone loves their subject and it shows that you really love Nine Inch Nails. I think so. She obviously really wants to convey to you that she loves the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the question here is how has the response been and mm. kind of did you expect that response maybe? Yeah, good question. Thanks, Jody. That's really kind. Yeah. It's really nice. 
<laughs> um, sorry, I'll gush first, then I'll be cool. No, absolutely. Um, but no, that's really nice of you to say. Um, and I think one of the things that's challenging is like there were many Nine Inch Nails before, um, books before me. Um, Daphne Cars was amazing. The other one by, oh shit, where they gone? Um, something Huxley. Oh fuck. I hope he's not alive. Martin? Oh, Martin? no, I hope he's alive. But yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, Martin was It was on 97. And then the poor chap, um, Tommy Udo, had a book in 99. He's no longer with us, unfortunately. But both those books, and sorry, all three of those books, if I'd say, I did reference and I drew things from, and I even just got like a jumping off point. So they weren't necessarily what I wanted from an Irish Nails book, which kind of spurred me on. But it's fair to say, like, I did, I did reference them and they did give me, like, an angle and information. Do you know what I mean? So, like, yeah. um, I know what Jodie means and I know, I think I know what she's trying to say about those things. But um, I have to acknowledge the fact that, like, I'm kind of like, yeah, you refer as, like, standing on the shoulders of giants. It's printed on the side of a pound coin. Um, not helpful for you guys. I appreciate that. But, it's just something to consider in terms of, you know, I'm kind of grateful there were other people that had done some stuff in the past and some research, um, especially Daphne Carr, to be fair, and shown some real insight because that spurred me on to try and do something else with it because there was an appetite and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in terms of Jay's actual question, sorry, um, yeah. I think I think generally fans have been really positive. Um, some I got a really funny review because I do check the reviews. I was um, going to ask. I was going to ask age. if you read your reviews. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, no, of course I do. I would get my secretary to do it for me, but I don't have a fucking secretary. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, <laughs> I I do read reviews here and there. And there was a really funny one on Amazon um, where this guy's like, um, obviously he called himself Mr. Black. <laughs> it's Johnny Cash. Yeah, but from the grave. Um, so I'm really freaked out now, but I can't sleep because it's one Amazon review. Just because it might be the soul of a dead country musician, um, right? He's after me, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. I'm the one he has to settle school with, right? I mean, come on, there's a, <laughs> the there's a cue. And this guy's like, um, Frank Zappa said that rock music criticism shit because they can't write and they're talking to people who don't know anything, and there's no point in talking about music because you can't talk about it anyway. I kind of agree with it. Yeah, I think he's got yeah. a point. You you can't necessarily write about music. And fuck me, I said this at the start of the book, so disclaimer. But um, I think uh, generally the, re- the response was really positive, really nice, really constructive. And like people saying, it's nice that you wrote about stuff that I was really interested in. Um, and it didn't necessarily have to reflect their personal feelings, but they knew that someone else found the album really important. And perhaps in some way it gave some insights to aspects of the album that they didn't know about or that they hadn't um that they hadn't perhaps considered before mm-hmm. um and that's the nice thing about it like we're all learning um mm-hmm. i had to do a shitload of learning in order to write the damn thing so i like to think that what i gave people in the book is um a gateway that opened them up to other influences and other ideas mm-hmm. that for me, came through the album, personally, and then things that were objectively there, like um, more about the history of Cielo Drive and the connections with the Beatles mm-hmm. and just the whole um, helter-skelter concept and how that indirectly tied into um, Manson's own derangement um, and then that informed 
Marilyn Manson, the protege of Nine Inch Nails. I mean, fuck me, there wouldn't be Marilyn Manson without Nine Inch Nails. And he's not a musician and he's not really much of an artist. He's more of a promoter. He's okay <laughs> at lyrics. He likes David Bowie. We all like David Bowie. Trent Reznor likes David Bowie. So fuck me, Marilyn Manson, he's okay. I kind <laughs> of like um, the Coma White album. I don't know what it's called, Mechanical Animals. I oh. kind of like it, but he is massively overestimated within himself. Um, sure. Yeah. Obviously, he can he can have a lawsuit on that, but it's just a fact. So you can never disprove it eagerly. Uh, but all I'm saying is, it's really interesting how um, some people will take a certain aesthetic and other people will take it another way. And um, Trent Reznor is first and foremost a musician and an artist, whereas other people are perhaps um, more imitators and rely on aesthetic above the art itself, which is not the same thing. Um, right. But yeah, thanks for your question, Jody. That was really nice. Yeah, thank you for sure. Um, I have to get to this one from Melissa. Uh, you might know her also in the UK. She runs the Nin Feed. Yes, um, she's really friendly. Yeah, mm-hmm. extremely friendly. She helped promote us when we got started. I know she promotes you. Yeah, she's a serious Nine Inch Nails fan. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. She, nice. She's uh, she's wild about them. Um, she wanted to know if there were any non. NIN books. So we've talked about the previous NIN books. Any other books that inspired you to write this or inspired you as as you wrote it? Oh, that's a great question. Do you know what? That's a really good question. Um, yes, I happen to have one just by my side, mm-hmm. as if I knew the question was coming. Um, oh. Revolution in the Head um, by a chap called Ian McDonald, who's no longer with us. Now, I think this is the kind of book Everyone knows who the fucking Beatles are. You don't have to like the Beatles to enjoy this book. Weirdly, he puts in those music theory. Bear with me. Don't switch off, dear listeners. Don't, yeah. don't change the um, velocitator on your radio set. Um, <laughs> that's how it works now. I don't know. Um, yeah. It's a really fucking great book that I came across through another podcast called Backlisted. Um, but the point is, Revolution in the Head is an individual breakdown, song by song, of um, Beatles songs. And um, it really inspired me that you don't have to talk just about music theory. You can talk with passion and intensity about lyrical content, which is there for all to see. But also you can talk about what the song means to you and how it makes you feel Mm -hmm. and um, emotional, personal resonances that might have with your own life. For example, um, mental health concerns, body trauma, suicide, all these kind of things. So not in the Beatles so much and more than anything else I'll be honest um, but it was um, yeah the book that really struck me and so it's recommended and so I read that while I was working on this book and it really helped me not necessarily change the direction of the book but just like shift my perspective like there's so much more we can say um, as listeners and it doesn't come from the artist like Trent Reznor it comes from um, the people who are fans and how they react to the music and perhaps that is the more valuable stuff to the artist than their own reflection upon. Oh yeah, I think I use this boss fuzz pedal, but maybe it was a line six pedal. <laughs> um, because we all love that kind of stuff. But I left a lot of techie things out of the book. A, because it's not my area, and B, because it's not necessarily resonant to people. So yeah, that was a big book. And I did put a reading list on my website. I mean, I think I put the full bibliography up there 
which is actually really long and really dense, but it does have web links. So if you want to go and find a really good interview with Alec Wilkinson in the New Yorker or the New York Times, they're the same thing to me. Um, <laughs> this really good fucking journalist um, spent a lot of time with um, Trent Reznor talking to him more as a person and as a musician, um, things like that. It's all on my website. So um, you can link back to what I found and what inspired me. And I think like that's a really valuable resource for fans. And I did use um, some really great websites while we're talking about books and stuff where people had put, um, there's like NIN archives. I think it's mm. a German website, dot, dot, de, dot Deutsch, yeah. Deutschland. <laughs> um, they have a really good archive of like all this stuff from the 90s and then into the 2000s. And it's like individual individual magazine articles from things like Spin and so on. Weirdly, Spin is still alive, but is not it? as a magazine. I think online. I think it's a website. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, That's how they all are now. It's, it's really hard to find those things broadly, whereas you go to these archives, it's all there. So I was really grateful to them because I could kind of cherry pick my era of what I was looking at. Um, but yeah, Revolution in the Head is amazing. Um, Daphne Carr's 33 and a Third was very helpful because Daphne did this great article where she talks about I and you and me. Um, and in relation to Reznor's discography overall, he mm-hmm. shifts from um, being very self-absorbed, all about me, um, I'm a teenager type character, mm-hmm. and yeah. all this anguish and pain is within me, and then moves to a broader social sphere. And I don't think that art should necessarily be political to be valid and interesting. But um, obviously he made more political albums, but it wasn't that. It was that he created a greater emotional resonance and reflection with his listeners, even on things like The Fragile, you know. And by which time it was really weird because they were The Fragile, The Wretched, you know, that was his like fan base. It's really strange. Like it was a cult, but not something that he intended yeah, I spend enough time in the fan base <laughs> now that cult like is is not a totally unfair descriptor. So, and I it depends on the that. person, right? Yeah. yeah, you meet different people within the oh, yeah. um, the group yeah. or the um, the audience, should mm-hmm. we say? Yeah. But yeah, it was it was really good um, to to push for books like that. And there's weird things like um, I think there's a there's a film. It's not Leviathan because that's one of the samples. Like <laughs> yeah, sci-fi reptile. Sample. But the point is, it's really hard to find Reznor's literary influences. I don't think, Mm. broad strokes, he's the most well-read guy. And that's not about intelligence. It's about um, perhaps academic intelligence. I think he's more of an emotionally intelligent person. If you were going to profile him from what he does and how he works, it's nothing about spectrums and so on. It's just he works more as an intuitive musician. He's a player. He can... He's classically trained. He can hear keys. He can hear modes and so on. And he can work within that framework and he can find the emotional resonance within it. None of that has anything to do with books. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he, he doesn't necessarily talk about those kind of things very much. And um, yeah. I think that is reflective of just the kind of person he is. And that's okay. You know, it's easy, it's easy for other people to perhaps um, criticize that as being a limited worldview. But I just don't think he's a huge reader. I think he's a big listener. Um, I feel very validated as someone who's maybe not the most well-read guy, but I still want to be seen as mm-hmm. smart. So thank, <laughs> thank you. But don't you think um, we get a lot from like um, things like the Downward Spiral? We get a lot of um, 
inspiration and ideas and reflections from what we've listened to. Um, and even things like um, the Closer video, which is full of artistic references. Yep. And a lot of that came from Mark Romanek, to yep. be fair. But Romanek was written off as a glossy, celebrity-endorsed um, videographer, as opposed to an artist in his own right. And, you know, the Closer video is a work of art. Yeah. yeah, look at the stuff before Closer. I mean, Jess knows more about it than I do, but all the glossy Madonna <laughs> stuff that looks nothing like Closer. It was always mm. good, but mm -hmm. he had done nothing like that. Anyway, well, thank you. We just sold 10,000 copies of uh, Revolution in the Head. Is that what it was called? Uh, yep, Revolution in the Head by Ian McDonald. Unfortunately, he's dead. Um, he mm. died before his time, the poor mm. chap. But it's a great fucking book. And it, it, it genuinely blew my mind. And I liked the idea that you didn't have to be a big Beatles fan because you kind of know the songs. You can't help it. Yeah. Because the bloody 20th century is knocking on your door all the time. But it, I liked the fact that um, he made the songs new for you in his writing. And that's a real skill. Just before I do more mm -hmm. self-indulgent Blake questions, do you have any? Well, I mean, kind of. We were talking about Daphne Carr and um, the different types of maybe Nine Inch Nails fans. And I was listening to mm. a podcast that she guested on. Uh, it was around the time that Nine Inch Nails were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it was a podcast that was talking about kind of the Rock okay. and Roll Hall of Fame. And I don't know if you've heard this one, but she was talking about how when she was writing the book, uh, the 33 and a third series on Pretty Hate Machine, mm. um, she said in this interview, for people who haven't read the book, it's it's um, kind of more of a, a sociological study of, of Cleveland <laughs> and of the 80s, you know, that era, you know, a post-Reagan kind of era. And uh, the Rust Belt. Yeah, the Rust Belt in general. And so for each song, she would interview maybe a different fan and ask about their perspectives on the track. And so she was talking about in this interview, she was writing the book, I think, like in um, 2008-ish, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, she was talking about how it was the first time as a journalist that she felt uncomfortable interviewing men. And um, she said that she felt afraid several times that the men she was talking to um, seemed to be unused to talking to women. Uh, they seemed resentful. They referred to women in the third person. Um, they seem to really hate women. And um, to them, Reznor's music affirmed that uh, women were just kind of terrible people and they can't be thought of as fully human. I don't. I, these are all her insights, by the way. I don't know that anyone said this to her. Um, mm. These were just kind of her, her insights from interviewing. And you also talked about in your book a little bit about incel culture mm -hmm. um, mm. and, and things about, of course, these terms weren't used in the 90s. And if they were, they were maybe... Uh, like toxic masculinity, that kind of thing. They didn't even have that term. They called it. They just called it chauvinism, and whatever. <laughs> I mean, there might have been yeah. in, in some kind yeah. of academic academia that we're not Maybe. fully aware of. I mean, some of these terms have existed for a while. They just weren't mainstream. <laughs> I guess my. I, I don't really know what my question is on this. Um, <laughs> I I just think it's an interesting thing to think about the interpretation of music. Right? We've talked before. Well, not we haven't, but I mean, Columbine. Toxic masculinity, young boys taking out aggression, and later the press turning it into a music situation and blaming Nine Inch Nails and blaming Marilyn Manson and mm. um, 
And I guess, have you ever experienced anything like that? I mean, you've, you're in the fandom, you know, have you ever experienced any kind of uh, really negative uh, fan base who maybe don't <sighs> seem to, <laughs> does there seem to be an inordinate amount of people like, like that? Like misogynistic fan base? Yeah. In, in the Nine Inch Nails fan base or. It's um, a really are, good question. Are people really, really, really misinterpreting a lot of, because uh, I, she also kind of stated that she would never want to write a bigger project or work with Reznor because she feels like he wouldn't want to work or open up to uh, women journalists, which I don't know if that's true or not, because mm. he has done several interviews with like Lizzie Goodman recently, you yeah. know, um, been on her podcast and seems to be opening up to her quite a bit recently. So mm. I'm not certain. Um, I just don't know if you've come across that yourself in your research or in in your own and just kind of being in that in the fan world. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a really good point. And it's um, it's a really broad um, it's a really broad challenge, isn't it? It's like, um, I think, like I say, I think Daphne Kahn did really good work with her book. Um, what was, I think, challenging, I think, for a general reader is that a lot of it was like individual reports from people that she met. And it was a lot of like challenged, damaged, lonely guys who happened to live in the Rust Belt. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about like Cleveland and the surrounding areas of Ohio, even obviously Cleveland itself. But I don't think there's loads going on there. Likewise, I don't know about now, uh, but I, you know, it's not a rich part of America, um, no. and the, the background would be working class. And then, obviously, like in the UK, where the work is removed, you still have a working class, but they don't have opportunities to work, and that's the um, the challenge in that. But yeah, I think things like Nine Inch Nails, because it is so even in the early years, it's so upfrontly aggressive and exciting and intense. I think it would perhaps attract more of a testosterone environment, testosterone-driven audience. But at the same time, there's been a lot of people made a case about um, women very into that music, and they feel that I'm aggressive too. I want my aggression to be acknowledged as chiming with that kind of music and that kind of stuff. However... At the same time, I think they're excluded physically, um, perhaps from things like the mosh pit, but also they're perhaps excluded in perspective. And that's not necessarily something that we would level at Trent Reznor, right? Yes. It's just that the music's were like, a lot of the early music was like, me, 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 I, 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 even the fragile, you know, it's like really like a kind of torture spiral thing about him and autobiographical spillover. And that book was good because it tried to show the people that like that kind of music, this is their sociological reality, mm. um, especially in terms of employment and what their future is going to look like. And so maybe some people would kind of say like, they're like trailer trash kind of people in terms of they have no prospects and they're uneducated, but they appreciate music or it resonates with them emotionally. Mm. And that doesn't make them lesser fans and such, obviously, but I think societally, it makes them count less for some people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a great thing, actually, we think about it, you know, we talk about when that book was published, it's like, where are they now? You know, yeah. Yeah. Or when are they now? Like, what happens to people? Maybe they're not with us for various reasons, you know. And I think, obviously, Daphne Carlyle did her due diligence and stuff in her research, but she was trying to reach out to fans that were like, 
outcast fans you're like i love this fucking rock music i find it really uplifting and it engages me and it speaks to who i am and i feel great when i go to concert and i feel my um really emotionally reinforced when i have some of my challenging experiences reflected back at me because i'm not so alone but um yeah it's tough to think about what's next for them and that's nothing to do with Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor, he can't manage those kind of things. I mean, you you but, put the um, art out there and you can't control how it's interpreted or who listens to it or, uh-huh. you know, yeah. what is done. And I don't think he's so. going to make them commit suicide. I think the situation made them commit suicide. But um, it's just they perhaps took from it what they needed or wanted to take from it. And that's not saying the artist is not responsible for anything, but it's just that I don't think that's what the music was about, you know. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's really interesting, the, the Daphne Carr research. I just think what's, what's challenging is the book was about like Pretty Hate Machine and then it kind of spanned things like The Fragile and so on. And that's a really different era and that was a really different really different um, audience as well because mm-hmm. there was some audience there from the start. I was there in 89 or yeah. 87 when it was Exotic Birds or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was there all the way through. Um, and other people like, you know, bought the fragile because it was the big double major um, LP and stuff. But obviously that one didn't sell anywhere near as well, um, right. specifically as um, the Down Spiral. So it's a really interesting shift in convergence because the fragile is really fucking good. Like if you just take each album in isolation, they're both really good. Yeah. So it's surprising that you could almost call the fragile more middle of the road, but it was a double album. And people don't relate to double albums because they have to straddle, not a disc change, uh, but in the LPs, it's like, I think it's nine LPs. <laughs> oh, is it six? I don't know. My math is bad. Um, you know, people struggle to um, make the leap from um, so many themes and variations um, and challenges to the next bit of the next record and so on. And it's, it's just fucking long, you know. Yeah. People don't necessarily have the time for it. Uh, and yeah, it is one of those rare things, like the Diamond Spiral, it works really well listened to continuously, you know, because it makes oh, so yeah. much more sense as a marginal sensitivity. Um, did I answer your question properly? I'm not sure. Yeah, I just, when I heard that, it was when we were discussing starting the podcast, and I had quite a bit of uh, fear going into it, because I was like, oh, man, I don't know. I mean, I've never met anyone, mm. uh, but I've never put myself in those spaces. I'm not big on Reddit, you know, I, yeah. I'm i not big in Discord. I've never been big, you know, in the early days, like, on fan sites. It might have been an earlier <clears throat> day problem, too, like rampant misogyny maybe has died down a little bit in this particular fandom not gone away completely but yeah yeah maybe less but i'm just saying i i have not encountered anything mm. so far in to, like any kind of interaction to address with- that sorry to address mm-hmm. that briefly um because i've sharpened my mind right now um mm-hmm. i think you're right i think i i might have referred to like jim bros in the book mm-hmm. maybe once maybe twice yeah. um so i read a fair bit of check and um fight club guy We'll yeah. throw that out there for the listeners. Sorry. And um, I thought Nine Inch Nails are an interesting phenomenon because I don't think Trent Reznor reflects that thing. It's not that he's so vast and so subtle and so genius. It's just that I don't think he was ever a part of a particular thing. He made his own thing. And that's what made it so interesting. And obviously, a bit like David Bowie, he, plays around, he played around the early days with gender 
um, representation and SM and dominance and power dynamics and stuff. So when it comes to incel, you know, it wasn't really invented when he started, right? Yep. And um, the reason I put that kind of stuff in the book, it was like, well, fuck me, my, like my generation are just like living through either the aftermath or a, a, a refraction of that kind of thing of sexual violence and male dominance and the idea that um, guys need to reassert themselves and that will somehow balance out the culture because it's gone too soft. Yeah, bit, bit reactionary um, there. Of course, yeah, yeah. And in terms of um, people getting very upset in, in both sides of the continental divide about things like BLM and um, what makes me angry to hear is that people say, well, you're telling me Black Lives Matter but white lives matter too. But the point is that white lives never mattered in the same way that black lives always have. So you didn't experience slavery as a culture because you're white mm-hmm. and um, other people's ancestors did and they're traumatic inheritors of that legacy. And thus they're living through something from the past, whereas you just want equivalency, but you don't want equivalency on an equal basis. I've gone on a fucking tangent. I'm really sorry. But my no, point it's all, is... It's all it's about, okay. I was um, asking some weird any, questions. Anyone there. who listens to our show has to love tangents because <laughs> we, it's all it's we do for hours and hours and hours. And like, here we like, are. I'll just take it in a different direction. <laughs> Coming down to the last the, few here, um, I had to get my own question and because i became a little bit obsessed with a thing you said uh you said uh, the what i call the triple m and now in discussing nine inch nails music brings it up every time yeah i keep doing this the man machine mystique and i'm actually and it's in my Uh, favorite chapter where you talk about all the tech stuff and you say you're not techie but of course my my favorite chapter is the techie chapter yeah Um, that's fine (laughs) uh i'm actually doing another podcast uh called discographology right now we're doing the discography of craft work i know later in the book you mention craft work because they have an album called man machine i wanted to know when you you, when you said man machine mystique referring to trent reznor's the phenomenon of is it a synthesizer that sounds like a guitar or is it a guitar that sounds like a synthesizer? Mm-hmm. We still that, debate mm, things like this. That's, <laughs> that's the triple M. Were you thinking of craft work when you uh, wrote that? Totally. Okay. <laughs> that I, uh, End of discussion. Satisfied. Switch off. Yes. I'll be that's out. Great. I'm gone. I'm <laughs> glad to know. Um, no, absolutely. Know. That's a good question. Um, yeah. I, I'd be fair, like I, I think I borrowed slash stole the phrase, but um, they nailed it down into what I think they called like uh, an autonomy of music, but they didn't think their music lacked heart and things like the model doesn't lack heart. It's like, it's quite a, it's a ballad by another name mm-hmm. in another medium, right? Yeah. Um, and I had that CD in my car. Um, I'm not a, huge craft work expert but like um because that was a later album it was more yep. commercial right and it's not commercial the things like neon lights it's like so soothing so ambient and it has the physiological effect of moving under a series of neon lights on a stripway on a highway and they're just there and it has that beat and that vibe 
So you feel that shit from um, Firefox. But um, yeah, the man-machine dynamic, it's really interesting because it was kind of laid out for Resna beforehand. But yep. um, I think one of the challenging things about the downward spiral, and I think you mentioned this to me before, um, is that it's the question of um, the, the man versus technology type um, challenge. And is, is, is the narrative of the album that uh, a person is slowly being taken over like, you know, Akira style, mm-hmm. Akira style, mm-hmm. um, by technology and they're being subsumed by things that they can't necessarily control, but they thought they were the master of. Or is it the person um, perceives themselves as some kind of megalomaniac god over all of these things? And um, technology is there to serve them, but it is only through technology they can actually express themselves, not on a one-to-one, face-to-face human basis um they can't necessarily connect and engage with people and it's perhaps through music or um what would emerge as programming and so on that they could um find some kind of common language and also be relevant in other people's eyes um i think that's a really interesting thing like you know about like um the rise of like geek culture and cosplay and things like that those things were very uncool and now it's like, well, those people were working really hard and building a big part of your culture and you didn't realize it and it crept into the mainstream and became really significant and influential, but also showed you new possibilities of a new future that you hadn't reckoned upon before. Right. To bring it back to Nine Inch Nails a bit, sorry. Yeah. I just think that people perhaps underestimated a band like Nine Inch Nails because they were industrial and yeah. that is one side of the sound. But obviously, given all the soundtrack work since then, it's like such a broader, weirder, more dynamic, um, evasive thing. You can't really pin it down. And I love that idea because, like, you know, to be fair, Trent Reznor is that kind of age of where he can do a lot of things. He can do more national records, but they're not going to be like the old ones because yeah. he's a different person, as he said several times. Um, but he can be an artist in different ways, and it's like, I really admire someone who can do those different things. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Um, we have listener ones that kind of nicely wrap it up, but Jess, is there anything that we didn't get to uh, before we do the, the closeout questions? I can't think of anything off the okay. Go for it, Jess. I'm here. Okay. <laughs> um, I make the time. Yeah. I, I do think maybe we wouldn't have a nine inch nails if we didn't have the man machine mystique, the triple M of craft work before them. You know, I've said that on the other podcast, <laughs> maybe NIN would not exist if not, not for bands like craft work. True. Um, both, uh, a couple of people, Jamie and Rob asked, would you write a book on another Nin album in the future? And kind of to go with that, both Jody and Daniel asked, would you write a book on any other musician? So kind of a two-parter there, but another Nin album in the future, would you do a book? Or would you prefer doing one on a, on a different musician altogether? Or both? I love the left-right. Um, yeah. Got obviously, got I, would, I would do, an, being an artistic person, I would do a non-book. Um, that's the only thing I can offer to the audience. So, you know, some kind of like NFT or um, oh, no. <laughs> faxes. You have to buy a fax in order to get my words. And they'll be like, hello. Like, oh, shit. I can't wait for next week. He said hello. <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. they're waiting on my every um, excretions. Right. Um, no, I, 
It's a really interesting question. When I did the thing, the project, I didn't, I, I, I love Nine Inch Nails, and it's not my only band, obviously. Um, my other band is my extra features. Um, I'm completely divided, and people hate me for it. But I was like, well, I've done that, and I move on to something else, you know, carpentry, um, undertaker, chef, but not at the same time. You know, will you have the charcoal quail? No, it's inedible, but it will clean you out. You might die, but um, you'll feel great <laughs> for a while. Um, so I ruled out those possibilities. And um, I did think to myself, like, oh, it'd be good to in the music book. However, I signed up to do a Nick Cave project hmm. and uh, um, a David Bowie thing about um, what is perhaps my favorite David Bowie album, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. Jessica has a particular affinity for that one, I think. Of 1980. Hmm. Um, but all that being said, I am really interested in doing something about the fragile. And people said to me, like, in some of the reviews, they're really kind. They're like, do you think, not like, would you please begging and so on. Just like, do you think you might do the fragile? Because it's like, there's loads to talk about with that. And it was just like fans on forums and things. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Is there? Because it's such a, like, um, in some, so many ways, it's such a slicker, more streamlined beast and stuff. It's because Trent had entered the industry at a really major level then. And there was such massive expectation album, which didn't necessarily fulfill. Um, it's crazy because it was 99 and I think it sold like 450,000 copies off the cuff. It didn't break a million, which they thought would have to break a million. And if you break two million, that's a good day. Um, mm -hmm. And then there was things like um, uh, Radiohead with um, Kid A and Amnesiac. I don't know if Kid A was 99 or 2000. 2000, I believe. Yeah. And that was like, boom, massive sales. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, some people are like, this is a shit album, but they're like, this is completely different to what I expected. But well, I love that An argument in this household over whether Kid A is good or bad. One of us is on one side, one of us is on the other. Kid A, I don't want to. It's not my place it. to. Uh, it's not my, it's not the right. You don't want to get involved in that. Anyway, I don't mean to derail. <laughs> I don't want to cause anything. It's very good. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the, the fragile then may I, can I tell people that may be in the pipeline then? I'd like to. Okay. There's nothing, there's nothing happening, but I would like to, because I, I saw that and I was like, there's so much to be said upon it yeah. in contrast to the downward spiral. And it's so fucking crazy that Trent had this massive gap. And yet he still had this really, I talk about this in the book, he had this really harsh, definitive crash, you know, towards, um, towards the end of 2000. Mm -hmm. So it's a really difficult um, period. And I don't, like I say, like with the, um, the Downward Spiral book, I don't want to dwell upon biography and stuff because I think it's A, quite personal, and B, I think we're beyond that as listeners. We don't want to know about like, how much of a massive racist Eric Clapton is. is. <laughs> <laughs> From, um, we already know that. We know all that. Yeah. He, he, because of him, they started the rock against racism movement. It's like, fuck's sake, Eric. And he's like, <laughs> what do I do? What do I do? Just one guy. Like, yep. Yeah. I was only a bit racist. Like, oh, man. Anyway, um, he never apologized for it. Sorry. This is of course, tangent. of course not. But what I'm saying is, um, there's, there's really different like phases in music and you don't necessarily want to go on about like 
what happened with the person individually because so much more interesting to work the record you can go into the record that's what fans really resonate with they i think they think they want to know trent Reznor's favorite foot fungal cream when he was struggling on tour he's yeah. like it's really itching wearing boots every night and big socks um yeah. what they really want to know is like what was on his mind when he wrote just like you imagined and what drove him what was frustrating him maybe it was fruit irritation maybe it was something else that's possible right yeah <laughs> and I think like the fragile is really rich and really interesting and it was the big progression to the next thing and it's so strange because commercially it's viewed as a failure but no one looks at it like that no one who likes unleashed nails no one who bought it, it it's accrued millions over the years of sales but mm-hmm. at the time it was a relative failure and it's intriguing that that was possible but there was a massive lag was considered a failure too right the did not sell out tour, did maybe. not sell out big arenas i didn't know that yeah i, I think I know that. it was kind of a disappointing lackluster and you think by then people were desperate to see nine but it was almost like it was um a massive valence gap and it was too big right it yeah. was too much to sustain the audience of that era and yet now like my niche nails are so big and the challenging argument is have they made an album to best the downward spiral the fragile a lot of us i think would say no but they made really good stuff along the way and they still make good stuff that's really challenging and provocative and it's not about comparison anymore it's about like are they an artist who's working hard or resting on their laurels like they never tried to do the downward spiral too they never tried to do right. repeat of the fragile which is like the fragile is such a crazy album it's incommensurable to your mind that they could try and do something like that and that's what makes it great art i think that you can't necessarily say i'll fucking knock off a fragile double record because it doesn't what would that even look like it'd be such a like lazy ass mess it wouldn't make sense Mm -hmm. and hesitation marks was an interesting thing because it was 2013 and there was so much critical distance and it's almost like resin's talking about okay this is me talking about how I was then, but talking about it now with all my experience um, on all my creative development. And it's kind of a poppy record, but it's really good and interesting in its own right. I love hesitation so, marks. So Yeah, yeah, me too. And I, I don't even I can't explain entirely why I love it. Because yes. it's quite not not nine inch nails, it's not very guitar-y, it's not very distorted. It's just it shows a lot of dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of flex. It's trying different um, things. Lindsay yeah, Buckingham. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's he doing? <laughs> Agent Blue to Lindsay Buckingham. But yeah, he's the new Adrian. All... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've gone on a tangent. No, no, um, no. But I, I'd, I'd like to do another book. Um, I don't know if there's a readership. I don't know if there's a publisher for it. Um, but it'd be interesting to see. Well, I'd be in the readership uh, as The Fragile may be my favorite. It's hard to say. I know a lot of people Maybe are too. with me on this, so it's not just me. Um, I hear it on the internet. but um, The internet? Oh, my God. Ten. <laughs> yeah. I just doubled my readership. But I, I'm very interested, uh, excited, and scared to get into The Fragile stuff on podcasting. Yeah, yeah. Because it's huge, right? Yeah, it's, so big. it's too big. It's almost too big. So 
that's that's maybe not a direct plug. I mean, you wanna you wanna plug your own career any more substantially or directly than that? Anything else we should know about? Yeah, I was trying to find your first novel, and I couldn't find it in a way to buy in a physical format. Mm. I was oh, looking for I, it. I think do you know what I think it might even be out of print, but like I don't know if anyone in America bought a copy. I just heard about it I today. So anyone anyone bought a copy? I don't think so. I'll send you one. Okay, that would be awesome. Look. Look, here you go. You have this one. Okay, awesome. I'll Venmo you. Give me your Venmo and I'll... But the key thing is, I'm not like a crazy guy with like my house is just books. And like, I sold my wife and my dog and my car Mm -hmm. and my house is full of books now. I see a small... In real life, not just a house full of books. It looks like a healthy amount of books on the shelf right there. I can say that. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, Adam, for your time. And thank you for your book that you gave us. Oh, and thank where, you. where can people find you if they want to read your blog or uh oh great question yeah yeah um, <laughs> thank you um there are excerpts from the book um on my blog yeah you're right um so my website is um adam steiner s-t-e-i-n-e-r dot u-k um and you go on my blog page and i have loads of excerpts from the book there so if you enjoy the excerpts perhaps enjoy the book <laughs> um i'm on twitter at burnt out ward which is b-u-r-n-d-t out ward uh and otherwise yeah um just google me i'm out there he's easy to find online and he's a good follow and he he will interact with you on the socials so it's a fun i will time. say hello yeah. i like saying hello to people and they're like jesus and they don't respond back they're like oh my god that's too much it's too strong he came on he came on too much i was like i just said hello man jesus I, and I'm just like, hey, uh, be on my podcast, please, I guess. Which I'm happy and appreciative to do because it's really nice like, to talk to people who are fans and have read the book. Um, obviously, you enjoyed the book. It's great as well. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being here. It's been awesome. Yeah, uh, very you. insightful. Um, I'm sure we could go 10 hours more, but uh, <laughs> we have to be realistic here. So. <laughs> that was a great interview huh? <laughs> sorry what i was not expecting that to be the way you would come what? back i'm sorry how I'm sorry. would i come back <laughs> what, what were you what were you expecting i don't know <laughs> god well that and i wasn't expecting you to do it right then like usually you like prep me and you're like okay really, we're, we're no. going because you were fucking with I the just, computer and then you just sat down and said that uh, like with no to, warning i was trying to catch you off guard well you, you got it so thanks for listening to that i really hope you liked it as much as we did. Thank yeah. you, Adam, again. Thank you so much. And this was supposed to be our downward spiral wrap-up, which it kind of was. I mean, talking to Steiner. the Yeah, it's part of the wrapping yeah. up process. Yeah, but we were going to have a little bit more uh, to share with you guys. But but that would have been like a three-hour podcast. We don't need more of A little too long and also technical difficulty, yeah. which pushed our recording back to the point where we couldn't record yeah. because it's christmas now so yeah so um, as as you listen to this or as we do this we're literally wrapping presents right now folks we got i'm stressed out okay it's the holidays it's christmas eve eve we're stressed man consider this kind of your 
Christmas present, I guess. Yeah. Putting it out right before Christmas. We just felt bad about not having it out there for yeah. you or having um, anything. So I'll, I'll try to put out something for the bonus content as well. It may not be the normal type of bonus, but I'm going to try to do something because everyone is so nice and generous with us that I'm going to try to put out content, you know? Yeah. Should we say anything about the fundraiser? or? Yeah, I was thinking that we could definitely talk about that. Um, so... Trying to brainstorm ideas to get money to invest in a new uh, computer since the old one died. And we thought a really cool thing to do would be to have a raffle of some cool Nine Inch Nails stuff. So we've been gathering up stuff. We've got a t-shirt that I uh, – it's it's a bootleg reproduction. We've of... got rare shirts. <laughs> we do. We have rare It's, it's a bootleg reproduction from Killer Serial Co., uh, but we have a of a cool nine inch nail shirt that I ordered. Mm-hmm. The raffle is going to have many prizes. We're going to have a vinyl record. Yep, at least one. At least one. We're going to have. Um, we don't even know. We're going to have sticker sets. Sticker sets. We're going to have one of my personal T-shirts that I'm mm-hmm. donating. Maybe a Year Zero theme T-shirt. I don't know. Personally worn by Jessica, <laughs> covered in Jessica stank. Uh, no, I've washed it, but it might have Oscar oh. hair on it, and so oh, I apologize. No. Oh, I bet some people will pay a premium for that. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, we'll auction off a, a lock of Oscar's hair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's already um, generously offered a, a dreadlock. He gets little dreadlocks because he's got a lot of hair. Yeah, he has a lot of that mm-hmm. shit. I have to uh, cut out his mats because he doesn't let me groom him enough. But anyway, people seem to like us doing this, and I would like to resume doing this in a normal fashion. Mm-hmm. So it would be nice to have a working computer again, yeah. and not this laptop that is not meant to be a recording. I don't know what's going on, but yeah, it's clicking and popping, and so it's going to be hard to make more than five a five minute podcast. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we've also I'm probably allowed to say this right, but Matthew Crawley. from Creepy Crawly Co. Has... Yeah, has generously donated some items for the raffle. Which just made me so excited and happy. Like just so many kind and amazing people that we've met doing this podcast and very generous. So Yeah. And so if you want to, uh, as of now, we haven't even set up. We're going to set up the fundraiser somehow. I haven't decided. For information, go to our Instagram um, at NailedPod. Um, or uh, once it's set up, it'll be at NailedPod.com, which has a has links to all of our stuff, including the Instagram and and other socials and the Patreon. Of course, uh, as usual, for all our bonus episodes, we have 12 or 13 up there now. Mm-hmm. Um, the link is there on nailedpod.com. It's patreon.com slash nailedpod. Starting at $5 a month, folks. And thank you for uh, being patient with us. Thank you so much. And for being generous, everyone. Definitely. Uh, everyone's real supportive when I told them my computer uh, ate shit, and I was feeling weird about asking for a, a fundraiser, but people were supportive, and I we figured, hey, we could give a bunch of cool stuff away. So we get something, you all get a little something. No you need know to belabor I, this. Soft Jesus. So, uh... <laughs> you know what I mean. It's a but, raffle. You know how raffles work. Yeah. So we'll definitely be getting that together, um, and we'll post more information about that on our socials soon. Um, thanks to our patrons on uh-huh. Patreon. Uh, Blake said he, like he said, he's going to have a maybe a non-traditional bonus up to put up 
because uh, we feel bad about not having that ready. Yeah. Um, and it might be bloopers. <laughs> you want to hear our bloopers? Subscribe to Patreon. <laughs> Yike. Um, yeah, and Yikes is right. Next time we have a full length episode, it will be our final. Uh, downward spiral we're wrap actually up. do the final epilogue we're wrap hoping up. to get to the fragile in 2022 but i, I don't really know like at this to. point i would really <laughs> like to we've got to try to get on a schedule here anyway yeah have a great fucking holiday merry ninmas to all and to all a fist fuck <laughs> sorry i had a margarita with my veggie fajitas